0: to all of you, including those of you who are tuning in uh, from the Northwest Regional and our Bridgeland uh, Regionals here in Calgary, also venues in uh, different parts of the province. Um, it's just uh, really good to be together and again to celebrate uh, uh, the life change of people. And um, I don't know about you, but I always get blessed when we have baptisms. And it's always a reminder to me to remind you, um, uh, have you... Been faithful in this matter of baptism. Have you been baptized? And uh, if you haven't been, uh, read uh, Matthew chapter 28 and uh, uh, read it again. And because God calls us to be baptized, and I really want to encourage you to do that, it will uh, just be one of the biggest highlights in your life. A number of years ago, I, I spent several hours with a well known man who who possessed a quiet confidence. And yet as we talked, I was surprised to discover that he battled with feelings of inadequacy. Confirming once again my conviction that everyone struggles with this malady, one way or another. How about you? Ever feel like you don't have what it takes as a husband, as a wife, as a parent? Ever feel like you don't have what it takes as a leader or as a Christian? We all have. And that's because the fear of inadequacy started way back in the Garden of Eden. When God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, he provided them with a perfect climate controlled paradise, totally free of fear and conflict. I mean, there were no bills to cause financial stress. There were no neighbors to compare their lifestyle with. Uh, They they didn't even have to worry about uh, whether their clothes were up to date. Because they didn't have any. And and best of all, they had no in-laws to remind them of their inadequacies. I mean, Eve didn't have to hear Adam go on and on about his mother's cooking. And and Adam didn't have to hear her go on and on about all the other men she could have married. They were in a no-fear environment, and yet in Genesis chapter 3, we read, when Adam and Eve decided to go their way rather than God's way, fear entered into their lives, and fear entered into their relationships. And Genesis 3 verse 10 says that they hid from God. And we do the same when we feel inadequate, rather than turning to God we often hide from him. We distance ourselves from him, and and we try to rely on our own efforts to be adequate. Or we procrastinate, which is really just another form of hiding. For example, there's a task that I should do, but I fear I don't have what it takes to, to do that task, and so I put it off. See, we hide. Adam and Eve hid themselves. They also covered themselves up with fig leaves. And so do we. We we pretend that we've got it all together. We cover up stockpiling possessions and money and trophies and degrees and accomplishments. And we often do that as a way of communicating to others that we're adequate. And yet all these things are about as stable as fig leaves. That's also why, by the way, that people struggle with being generous. Because when you define your adequacy on the basis of of what you possess, well, giving it up means that you're giving up the very thing that defines you. And that's why so many of us live our lives like this rather than like this. Adam and Eve, they hid themselves. They covered themselves up. They also blamed others for the decisions that they made that didn't turn out so well. Adam said, Eve made me do it. Eve said, the devil made me do it. And see, folks, we basically follow the same protocol. When we feel inadequate, we often attempt to make ourselves feel better or to look better by talking about how wonderful we are, or by putting others down. See, these are some of the ways that we try to deal with these feelings of inadequacy. Now, I bring that to your attention because in the days of Haggai and Zechariah, the people were discouraged and they were feeling very inadequate. But I'm going to explain why in a moment. But before I do, I want you to turn, if you would, to the book of Haggai and Zechariah. They're right next to each other. And um, I want to give you a little background to what led to the people feeling the way that they do. Now, last time in our study in Haggai, I gave an extensive history overview of the events that led up to the nation of Babylon, ultimately destroying Jerusalem and the temple And how the Babylonians rounded up all of the Jewish survivors that were healthy enough to travel and basically marched them back to Babylon to serve as their slaves for a period of around 70 years. And during that 70-year period of time, the Babylonians were themselves conquered by the Medes and the Persians. If you study history, you begin to realize that, you know, back then in particular the great activity of nations was figuring out how they were going to conquer another nation. This is just something they did for a pastime. This particular um, decision was a significant event because one of the Persian kings, Cyrus, issued a totally unexpected decree in 538 B.C., allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Well, a short time later, around 50,000 Jews under the leadership of Zerubbabel took Cyrus up on his, on, on his offer and they made their way back to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they found the city and the temple in total room. And so they began rebuilding their city, beginning with the temple. However, there were people in the region who weren't fond of the idea of them rebuilding their temple and so they began to terrorize them. Now the Israelites who were doing this rebuilding, they just come back from 70 years of captivity. They were in no mood for more conflict. They were looking for security, for stability. And so they just stopped building when this terror activity began. And they left the temple in a ruined state for another 15 to 16 years. And so in 520 BC, God called Haggai to challenge the Jews in Jerusalem to get on with rebuilding the temple. And unlike most of the people who heard the prophets speak, the minor prophets that we've been hearing, the people of that day in Haggai's day actually listened to Haggai. They actually got out there and began to rebuild the temple. However, based on what we read on Haggai chapter two, it appears that there were some old timers in the crowd who had seen Solomon's amazing temple many years earlier before it was destroyed. And they were saying things, they were kind of taking shots at the work that was going on, and they were saying things like, you know, the work that you folks are doing is so inferior to Solomon's temple in both craftsmanship and also in the quality of material. I mean, why even bother doing what you're doing? Now, if you've ever served behind the scenes, where few people have noticed, where you've received perhaps more criticism than thanks, and you thought about quitting because what you were doing seemed so absolutely insignificant in comparison to what others were doing, then you know how these Jewish builders were feeling. They were discouraged. They were feeling very inadequate for the task. And so God calls Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people of their day. In Haggai 2, verse 4, God says this to them. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord God Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God says to them, in the same way that I was with you and fought your, your battles in the Exodus out of Egypt, or in the same way that I was with Solomon when he built my temple in his day, so I am with you now. My highest concern is not how elaborate my temple is, but that my people know that I am with you, and that you know what you are doing really matters to me." In verse 6, God essentially says, a day is coming when I once more will shake the heavens and the earth, and what he's really referring there is the next temple which will be made beautiful by King Herod, an event that's going to happen there and that is the four inch thick curtain between God and man, between the holy of holies and the holy place, will be torn in two from the top to the bottom. And from that time on, God says, my children will be my temple. And my presence will fill the whole earth through them. So take courage, he says, and be not afraid. Do what I tell you to do. Accept the assignments that I'm giving to you now. And know that I am with you to help you to complete what I've asked you to complete. Now, a few months after Haggai's prophecy, God calls Zechariah to reinforce this message, to lift the spirits of the people, to encourage them and give them hope that he is called, the, of these people, that he's called to build his temple. Those of you who read the book of Zechariah in preparation for our time together, wasn't that lovely reading? The three of you that read it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, if you did, you know what I mean when I say it was a rather difficult book to understand because like the book of Revelation, it is filled with lots of objects and symbolic imagery. And so I'm gonna try to make it as simple as I can and get right down to the the heart of it. The book of Zechariah is, is neatly divided into two parts, chapters one to eight and chapters nine to 14. In the first eight chapters, God gives Zechariah a series of eight visions, each of which reinforces a fundamental message, each of which gives a picture of a fundamental message that God wants the people to understand and to actually picture. And that is that He has their best interest at heart in all things, and therefore they can trust Him. For example, in the first vision in Zechariah 1, God says, trust me, I will protect you from your enemies. In Zechariah 2, He says, trust me, I am present with you. I won't leave you or forsake you. In Zechariah 3, he says, Trust me, I will forgive you of your sins and your regrets. In Zechariah 4, he says, Trust me, I will empower you through my spirit to complete what I've asked you to do. It is not by your power or by your might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Each vision has a message of hope and encouragement for the Jewish people and is intended to remind them that their God is faithful and can be trusted. And then in chapter 9 through to the end of the book, Zechariah points to the distant future. He reveals the Messiah's first coming, the first coming of Jesus, and gives a number of images that, of course, we identify with in the actual crucifixion and the times leading to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, including him riding on a donkey, being sold for 30 pieces of silver, being pierced, and and so forth. And then he goes on to reveal the Messiah's second coming as well and the events surrounding that. But here again, Zechariah uses all of this imagery to say to the people of his day, if you could see what I see, If you could see God at work behind the scenes, you would not be discouraged or filled with fear. Rather, you would be filled with hope and the courage to keep on keeping on. God is with you. He will protect you, and He will guide you, and He will empower you to do whatever He asks you to do. That is the essential message of Zechariah. Which brings us back to the question that I left kind of hanging out there before we got did the review here of Zechariah. And that is, what hope does God give to his people here with respect to their feelings of inadequacy and discouragement? Well, there's really two phrases that summarize the hope that God gives. The first one is this. Through Haggai, God says, you need never be discouraged because I am with you. God says, you're always on my mind, you are never alone and therefore you need not fear or to be discouraged. And then through the prophet Zechariah, God says, you need never feel inadequate because I am adequate and I will do what you can't do. In Zechariah four verse six, God essentially says to Zechariah, it's not by your might or by your power but by my spirit, that the mountain of uncertainty you're facing, that the mountain of inadequacy that you're feeling will be moved. And so what the Lord is saying to the people of that day, but also to us today, is the way to victory over our feelings of inadequacy is found in accepting the fact that in ourselves, we are inadequate. We may not like to hear this, but the reality is from God's perspective, no one has what it takes. We like to beat our chests these days and we like to say, I can do it, you can do it, we can do it. (laughs) But God says, who are you kidding? You couldn't move if it wasn't for me. Every heartbeat in your chest is a gift for my gracious hand. The reality is no one has what it takes. That's the first step to overcoming feelings of inadequacy, folks. Acknowledging that I am inadequate. That I don't have what it takes. You see, we need to understand that the Lord is never upset when we feel inadequate. In fact, there's a number of scriptures that indicate that God is quite upset with those who believe that they are adequate in themselves. James 4 6 says God opposes the proud, those who think they're adequate, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. God actually opposes those who try to prove that they're adequate and that they don't need God through their positions and through their possessions and through their own power. But he gives grace. He empowers those who are aware of their own inadequacy before God. And they, as a result, they reach out to him to do what they can't do. John Ogilvy he tells the story of a man named Alex who came to see him. And he basically said to him, you know, pastor, he said, uh, you know, up until this past year, I've been doing really quite well. But recently, I've been given um, a whole lot of additional assignments at work. And on top of that, one of my sons is in real trouble. And and I'm just having a real hard time um, juggling all of this. I've used, he said, all kinds of self-affirmation exercises that I know for developing confidence and a a positive attitude. In fact, every morning I stand before the mirror while I'm shaving, and I say, Alex, you can do it. I say, you know, you've got what it takes. Believe in yourself. But at the end of the day, I realize that the pep talk and all of that positive thinking jazz just doesn't do a whole lot of good. Pastor, he said, "I, I really fear messing up at work. I'm afraid I'm gonna fail there. My boy has me on the ropes and I really don't know what to do. For the first time in my life, I really feel inadequate. Pastor Ogilvy thought for a moment and then he quietly said to him, Alex, perhaps you are inadequate. And this look of shock and disappointment came over Alex's face and he said, well, what do you mean? I came to you to get a lift. I I came looking for some answers, not to have my worst fears confirmed. Pastor Ogilvie put his hand on Alex's shoulder and he said, my friend, we both know that you're a talented and highly trained professional. We both know how much you love your kids But face it, in both areas that you've identified, you're being pressed with challenges beyond your personal competence. You're inadequate by yourself. You need God's help. He's ready to give you wisdom and He's ready to give you vision and power that only He can provide, but you can only receive it by admitting, first of all, that you are inadequate and that you need the Lord. And I'm wondering how many of you are feeling like Alex today? How many of you are looking at a certain situation or a certain relationship or a certain assignment from God that's not unlike the unfinished temple in Zechariah's day and you're just feeling totally inadequate? If you are, then listen carefully, because you're about to make one of life's most crucial discoveries. That sense of inadequacy you feel can either be the source of your greatest discouragement, or it can be the beginning of a whole new adventure with God. It becomes a source of discouragement when you fail to include God in the picture, and you just keep trying harder to keep doing it yourself, finding answers yourself, finding a way to do it in the energy of your own flesh. But you know, there's nothing more exciting in the Christian life than to involve the Lord in our lives. And then to observe him do things in us and do things through us When you stand back in hindsight and you just kind of go, wow, there is no way that could have happened without God. And your faith in him starts going through the roof. That's the second step to overcoming feelings of inadequacy. Trust him to do what you can't do whether he alters your circumstances, whether he gives you direction or just gives you strength and wisdom to stand as opposed to falling, your faith is built immeasurably when you come to the end of your resources and you trust him to do the impossible. For it is not by your might or by your power but by my spirit, says the Lord." You know, the book of 2 Timothy was written primarily to encourage Timothy. He was struggling with feelings of inadequacy. Now if you read the passage, you you see very quickly that, you know, Paul didn't cheer Timothy on with a bunch of positive thinking stuff. He didn't remind him of, hey Timothy, you know, you're gifted, you know, you're talented, boy, you got lots of potential. Go for it, buddy. You can do it. No, if you read it, the apostle reminds him of the power of God in his life to do what he could never do in his own strength. Look at, if you just turn to 2 Timothy, if you would, look at verse 7. It says, Paul says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. You know what a spirit of timidity is? A spirit of timidity is an attitude or a way of thinking that prevents us from doing anything beyond what we are sure we can do in our own strength. A a spirit of timidity is when we will relate only to those that we know, only to those that we know, like us, or respect us. A spirit of timidity is to stay away from any activity that might possibly embarrass us. Any activity that might reveal an area of weakness, like going to a small group or going to a prayer meeting. You know, who knows? You know, people might discover that I don't pray really well. Or perhaps working with certain groups of individuals because we might — it might be found out that we're not very effective working with them. And Paul says to Timothy, such a spirit is not from God. And it does not please God because you're just trusting in your own ability. You're not making any room for God to show himself faithful and real in your life. He says, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Paul says when we surrender ourselves to the Lord completely, he gives us a supernatural love for people who are just, from our perspective, incredibly difficult to love. He does something in us and does a work through us that allows us to love the unlovely. When we surrender ourselves completely to the Lord, he gives us a supernatural wisdom and insight and direction beyond our intellectual abilities in dealing with whatever it is we're facing. When we surrender ourselves completely to the Lord, he gives us a supernatural power to do whatever He calls us to do. If you turn over to Luke chapter 9, there's a story there of of how a large crowd followed Jesus into the wilderness to hear Him teach. And He taught for most of the day. And near the end of the day, it became apparent to the disciples that these people were hungry And there wasn't exactly a McDonald's or a Wendy's nearby. And so they came to Jesus and they said, Lord, how are we going to feed these people? Now, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't say, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. No, he didn't say that. He said to his disciples, you feed them. You see, he pushed them past their... Comfort zones. They're human limitations. I mean, there was no human solution here. As best we can tell, there was a minimum of 5,000 people there. Out in the wilderness. And I mean, after he told them that, I'm sure one of the first things they did, had a little pow and they said, what's he thinking? I mean, there's no, no food here. Just, how are we going to do this? But they stepped out in obedience to his call. They began to mingle with the crowd. They found a young lad who had a few loaves and some fish. And they brought back this little lunch. And they gave it to Jesus. And Jesus blessed it. He broke it. And then they watched him, eyes wide open, as he multiplied it until everyone was fed and baskets of food were left over. You see, Jesus gave his disciples this object lesson to remind them and us that little becomes much when you place it in the master's hand. All of us, when we look at our lives, will at times feel like the Israelites felt building this temple with inferior materials. We're going to feel like we haven't got much of anything to offer God. But little becomes much when you do your part and then you place the rest in the master's hand. You may feel very inadequate as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a leader, but little becomes much when you place it in the master's hand. Back in verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. And the gift that, that, that Paul's referring to here is the Holy Spirit. You see, there was a time when the Holy Spirit had set a fire of vision and conviction burning inside of Timothy. He was just vibrating with passion, and off he went to serve his God. He ended up in a place called Ephesus, and while he was there, he began to face some opposition, and people began to kind of challenge him and he ran into a bunch of roadblocks and he was beginning to lose heart and his courage was diminishing and this can happen to all of us Francis Chan says when he was in high school he believed that God could use him to reach his entire school for Christ and he went through the yearbook And he called people. He met with them personally to tell them about his love for Jesus. He really believed that God was going to use him to change his school. But he says, you know, as time went on, some of his friends tried to settle him down a little bit. You know, try to convince him, you know, be a little more realistic. And he started to lose courage. And as he got more educated, he began to realize how much he didn't know and how much brighter other people were. And soon he began to believe that he had nothing to say and that God couldn't use him because, I mean, there's so much that he didn't know. I and mean, yet, folks, this is not the way that we should live because we're children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is living in us. You know, Chan goes on to say, a guy in our church can bench press 1,150 pounds. Strongest man in the world. It's a world record. Absolutely amazing. But he says, you know what's even more amazing than that? He says, his wife can bench press 405 pounds. He says, I couldn't even come close to doing that. And then he says, now, they have kids, and I don't know them, but my guess is they're not picked on a lot. (laughs) He says, I've never seen their kids, but, you know, with powerful parents like that, it would be just really weird if their kids were scrawny. And he goes on to say, what I'm saying is, we're children of the most powerful being in the universe. And it just looks weird when we're always running scared. We're always playing it safe. And we don't trust him to do through us what we can't do. From cover to cover, folks, the Bible talks about a God who can do anything, who says, look, I'm the only one who holds the keys to life and death and everything else. Folks, we need to live with that reality in mind each and every day. Well, Timothy had kind of lost sight of some of this. He was losing his courage, the same way the Israelites were losing their courage and their confidence. And yet notice that Paul didn't tell him to try harder. He didn't even tell him to pray harder. Instead, he told him to rekindle the flame to surrender again to the source of his supernatural strength, the Holy Spirit of God. That's the third step to overcoming feelings of inadequacy, folks, to keep being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And friends, Paul's instruction to Timothy applies to all of us here who once were on fire for God. But over the years, we let a failure we let pride, we let a hurt, we let a conflict or a disappointment, or we just left, let a preoccupation with living the good life and having it all snuff out the Holy Spirit's fire and power in our lives. The only cure, if I'm describing you, the only cure is to fan into flame the gift of the Holy Spirit that is within you. And you do that by surrendering yourself anew to the Lord, falling on your knees before God and saying, God, I am inadequate. I can't do it on my own. I need you to fill me and to do what I can't do. Ephesians 5.18 calls us to be filled with the Spirit. And the the, uh, the tense in this particular verse is in the present imperative, which means we are to be continually filled with the Spirit. You see, when you sin, when I sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, and through His influence, uh, His influence begins to diminish, and, and uh, diminish in our lives. There are many ways that you can grieve and quench the Spirit of God's fullness in you. You grieve the Holy Spirit, you quench Him when, when you don't include God in your day, when, when you ignore Him all day and, and you know His promptings and His leadings in your life. You grieve the Holy Spirit when you disobey God, or you resist trusting Him and take matters into your own hands. If you operate out of selfish ambition, if, if you slander other people, you break uh, His commandments, you grieve the Spirit and you quench his fullness in your life. It's kind of like you spring a leak, unless of the Spirit is with you. In fact, every time you feel inadequate, please hear me on this. Whenever you sense inadequacy erupting inside of you, see that as God telling you it's time to get filled again. It's time to surrender to God again and ask him to fill you again because there's too much of you in you and you need more of him in you. And so even before you get out of bed in the morning, man, if you want to live in victory, surrender your life completely to the Lord and and ask him to fill you with himself. Ask him to cleanse you from anything that would hinder you from 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 that would hinder him from just shining through you to other people ask him to keep his hand on you to empower you and to work through you in ways that you never could on your own and then as you set out to live your day determined to walk in the spirit which is the fourth key to overcoming feelings of inadequacy Keep walking in the spirit. Practice the Lord's presence all day. Be consciously aware of his presence in uh, in you and include him in your thoughts and in your decisions and ask him to empower your actions. Believe that he is living out the life of Christ through you. When you talk with family members or uh, with other people, ask the Holy Spirit to speak through you to them and then believe that He is. When you're working at your desk, ask the Spirit to guide and to direct your thoughts and your conversations on the phone and then believe that He's doing that. As you face challenges and, and obstacles, ask the Spirit to help you with those and then believe that He is. Listen to His voice and follow through the assignments that He gives you. I just want to pause for a moment, and I want you to imagine with me what it would have been like for the disciples to be with Jesus. Imagine with me what it would have been like for them to be able to talk to Jesus personally. To have witnessed his teaching and his miracles. Imagine what it would have been like to ask him whatever was on our minds and to just rest in him and trust him to guide us and to speak into our lives. Now imagine Jesus standing beside you right now in the flesh and you being able to have a relationship with Him the same way that the disciples did. Wouldn't that be amazing? Friends, you need to understand the same kind of relationship that the disciples had with Jesus, the same kind of relationship that you can Imagine having with Jesus if he was here in the flesh. You can have, I can have the same kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit who is in us. Same thing. Turn over in your Bibles to John 16 verse 7. Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, it is for your own good that I am going away. Now, the disciples didn't want to hear that. they have given their life to him. Now he's saying, I'm going to go away. And he's saying, it's for your own good. No, they didn't like that. But that's what he said. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Jesus wasn't joking here. He was saying, it's going to be better to live in the era of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, than in the days when he lived in the flesh here on earth. Why? Well, because even though Jesus is God, when he came to earth, fully human, in the flesh, he chose not to exercise his divine prerogatives. And so he couldn't be everywhere at once. He couldn't talk to everyone at once. He was limited by his humanity. Now, in the age of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, you see, is in all of us. God the Holy Spirit is listening to all of us individually. He's directing us. He's empowering us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now I'm sure that most of us understand this to be true Intellectually. But my question is, are we really living like it's true? Do we have a spirit of expectancy? The God of the universe is living in us. He wants to hear our concerns. He wants to counsel us and direct us. He wants to empower us the way that he has empowered people all the way down through history. I mean, have any of us really let this truth sink into our heads? And our hearts? Because if we have, if we really believe that the Holy Spirit of God is is residing in us as His children, wouldn't the fruit of the Spirit, a, a love, a supernatural love, and a supernatural joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness become more apparent in our lives? Wouldn't we be bickering less? complaining less and believing God to do greater things in and through us? Wouldn't we be more fearless and courageous and have a can-do mindset as we serve our Lord? I think so. I believe so. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Yes, we are inadequate. We are. But the God we serve and the God who is in us is more than adequate. Amen? The weakest one of God's children, when utterly surrendered to the Spirit of God, is empowered to to accomplish the impossible. The same Spirit who empowered Haggai and Zechariah and the people of their day, the same Holy Spirit who empowered and directed Jesus Christ while he was here on earth, the same Holy Spirit who did miracles through men like Paul and Timothy is within us right now. We need to live it out. We need to believe it to be true. And if we do, he will use us to touch the lives of people who matter to God and to bring joy to people who are sad. He will use us to bring hope to the hopeless and healing to the hurting. He will change the world through us, one life at a time. Imagine what would happen if everyone here were to say, Holy Spirit, I'm completely yours. Fill me, use me to bring your will to earth as it is in heaven. Can you imagine the kind of life changing power of God that would be released among us? Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I want to experience all that God has for me in this life. I don't just wanna go through the motions, fill in time, play it safe. I want my life to count for eternity. I don't wanna live a life on half full. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? When was the last time that you saw God's spirit at work in your life or around your life? I mean, really saw it work, saw him at work. If it was recently, God bless you for being open to him and thank God for his active presence in your life. But if you're having trouble recounting a time when the Spirit was at work in you or around you, could it be because even though you believe He's real, the fact is you've been ignoring Him? You've been actually kind of afraid of Him, you've been keeping, at a safe, keeping Him at a safe distance because you don't want your life to get too radical. And in doing so, you've also been missing the amazing adventure that God has for you. Anyways, if that's your heart's cry, if you want all that God has for you, I want to challenge you to take a moment now and surrender your life to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. and leave here believing He's living in you and through you. Just spend a few moments with the Lord in prayer right now. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to ask those who are baptized if you just make your way up here to a few of the chairs right on the front here and then we'll call you up on stage right after my prayer. Would you just stand for closing prayer? I'm just going to ask baptism candidates, if you just come right up on stage here. Let's pray together. I just want to remind you before I pray that the altar is open. Just make your way up here if you want to spend more time with the Lord and just seek his face. Prayer partners will be here. They'll be, love to just pray with you about anything as well. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for reminding us through Haggai and Zechariah that you are present with us. And that if we trust you, you will do in us and through us what we could never do. Jesus, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. For in ourselves, we can't live the life that you've called us to live. But by your Spirit, we can. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit and to live each day with the awareness that the Spirit is in us living through us. Lord, I pray that there would be just a new wave of divine activity that would take place in each of our lives and through each of our lives. pray that there would be a new openness on our part to the leadings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit within us. And that we would be amazed at your work among us. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you're doing. But Lord, we ask that you pour it on. May it be so to your glory. And for the sake of a world that needs Jesus, I pray. And Lord, thank you for these individuals who stepped out and just indicated their love for you, gave testimony of how you've impacted their lives and followed you in obedience through baptism. I pray, Lord, that you will fill them with your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would put a hedge of protection around them. And Lord, that you would use them mightily to impact others in their lives. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Amen.